Good morning, everyone. My name is Joe Lichty. I'm professor of Peace, Justice, and Conflict Studies here at Goshen. And it's my pleasure to introduce both the C. Henry Smith Peace Lecture, which is an annual event, and this year's lecturer, our own John Roth. Let me start with C. Henry Smith, however. Uh, he was an outstanding, groundbreaking Mennonite historian of a century ago and more. He taught at Goshen College from 1908 to 1913. Then he moved to Bluffton College and taught there until 1946. He established a trust from which Goshen College benefits in a variety of ways, all of them related to peace. There is extra money for peace-related books in many disciplines, for the library, for peace-related activities, for the student peace oratorical contest, and so on. And since 1975, one of those benefits is that the trust directors grant one award per year for peace-related research by faculty at Mennonite institutions, principally Goshen and Bluffton. The award has done much to stimulate research that might otherwise have been impossible, or at least less likely. And since its introduction, the list of lecturers has been distinguished and the topics innovative. That brings us to today's C. Henry Smith Peace Lecturer, Professor John Roth, who has been teaching at Goshen College since he was seven years old. Uh, well, well, more or less, a, a very long time anyway. Uh, John has been known to almost three decades worth of Goshen College students as an outstanding teacher, and he's a, certainly a great colleague. He is a GC grad. He is married to Ruth, also a GC grad. He is the father of Sarah, Leah, Hannah, and Mary, who have all been GC students. In fact, Mary might be here today. Could we have the spotlight? No. Okay. Um, don't worry, Mary, we don't need to do that. Um, if, if I were to start listing John's accomplishments, we would be here all day, so I'll dispense with that. But what I want to highlight is that while John is a historian, for some time now, he has increasingly turned his attention to church issues in the present. He has represented Mennonites in high-level conversations with other church traditions in this country and uh, globally. And he has also put a lot of energy into getting to know more about churches in the Anabaptist tradition. In recent years, through his position as uh, director of the Institute for the Study of Global Anabaptism. And this is the work that has led to his presentation today. So please join me in welcoming John as he addresses the question, Faith in Hard Times, a New Martyr's Mirror for the 21st Century? Question mark. John. Well, good morning. I uh, hope that uh, you return from uh, spring break with renewed energy and uh, excitement about the second half of the semester still ahead. On October the 6th, 1573, authorities in the Dutch city of Antwerp shackled a young mother uh, led her from a prison cell to the city square and tied her to a post. After piling wood around her feet, they publicly denounced her as a heretic and a criminal, and then, as her two children looked on, ignited the wood with hot coals and executed her in a fiery blaze. Her crime? Macon Wentz had voluntarily received baptism as an adult. 
Equally troubling, she had refused to tell authorities who had baptized her or who else was part of the small radical group of Christians that she had joined, Christians whom the authorities had labeled Anabaptists or rebaptizers. Even after a prolonged period of torture, she refused to recant. Mikan was part of a 16th century movement of radical Christian reform rooted in a fresh reading of scripture and an eagerness to apply the teachings of Jesus to everyday life. Although she and the other Anabaptists did not um, set out to antagonize authorities, their commitment to a voluntary church, uh, their practice of shared possessions, their refusal to swear oaths, and their insistence that Christians should renounce all forms of physical coercion got them into a lot of trouble. The fact that they openly preached about their understandings of the gospel to anyone who would listen only made things worse. In the eyes of the authorities, the Anabaptists were little more than religious heretics and social revolutionaries, a threat to good social order. Indeed, one of the few things that Catholics and Protestants could agree on in the 16th century was that the Anabaptist movement should be silenced. By the end of the century, some two to 3,000 Anabaptists had been executed for their convictions, with thousands more tortured, imprisoned, robbed of their possessions, or forced into exile. Executions in early modern Europe were intended to be public affairs. They were spectacles designed to entertain crowds and to serve as a warning against others who might be tempted to disobey the law. But authorities had also learned from their experience that the Anabaptists were capable of using these same executions as opportunities for witness. And dying well became an opportunity, that is giving testimony to the authenticity of your faith by dying well, uh, served as an opportunity to persuade those in the crowd that they too might want to join the movement. We have numerous examples of Anabaptists who were preaching or teaching or singing hymns, praying as they uh, were dying, calling on the crowd to repent. And so one group's criminals became another group's martyrs in the original meaning of that term, which is to bear witness, to give a testimony. So when the time came for Maikin's execution, the authorities in Antwerp were determined to silence her once and for all. To prevent her death from becoming an opportunity for witness, they clamped her tongue with an iron bracket, that looks like this, a tongue screw, so that it would be impossible for her to pray or to preach or to sing while she was dying. They thought they had won. On October the 6th, 1573, the authorities were convinced that they had silenced Maikin, erased her from the memory of history by killing her and by ensuring that she could not bear witness as she died. But the long arc of history often disrupts the plans of the powerful. As it turns out, Following her death, Maikin's young son, Adrian, returned to the spot of her execution, sifted through the ashes of his mother's remain, uh, remains, found the tongue screw that had rendered her mute, and that tongue screw that was intended to silence Maikin Wentz was then passed down through the family 
from generation to generation, and indeed it can still be seen today in the Singelkirk Library in Amsterdam. So that the very uh, instrument that was intended to coerce Maikin's silence became an enduring and tangible testimony to her faithful witness. What's more, at some point shortly after her death, an unknown poet recounted the story of Mac and Wentz in verse form, where it appeared in a collection of songs appended to an early book of Anabaptist martyr stories known as The Sacrifice Unto the Lord. Several decades later, in the 1650s, a Mennonite pastor from Harlem, a man named Thielman from Bracht, made it a point to track down the letters that Meachen had written to her husband and her children and her pastor prior to her, uh, her death, which he then published in 1660 in a massive collection of sources known as the Martyr's Mirror. This is the English translation of the Martyr's Mirror. And one of those letters, written in Meachen's own hand, has survived in the Dutch archives. And then in a second edition of The Martyr's Mirror, published in 1685, the Dutch Mennonite artist, a man named Jan van Lauken, helped to fix the memory of Meik and Jens for posterity by supplementing the text with an image of Adrian and his little brother Hans shifting through the ashes at the site of their mother's execution where they found the tongue screw. Clearly, the fact that Meikin's story remains alive today, four and a half centuries after her execution, did not happen by accident. Someone cared enough about her story to retrieve, retrieve the tongue screw from the ashes and to preserve it as a symbol of her witness. Someone retold her story in verse form so that the memory of Meikin could live on in the form of a hymn. Someone took the effort to collect her letters, to copy them, set them in type, and to organize and, uh, and distribute the printing of a book. Someone brought the imaginative gift of the artist to bear so that that text is now transformed in our minds by the visual image that inspires imagination. And now someone today cares enough about her story to retell it once more. The account of Make and Wentz is a reminder that the stories from the past that come to shape a tradition are never preserved by accident. For the historian, the past is always both about the event itself and about the way that the event is preserved and often transformed in memory. Since the time of the early church, Christians in every tradition have preserved stories of the martyrs, drawing on the model of Christ's death and resurrection as a template for what it means to bear witness to the faith. For Mennonite groups in Europe and North America, that martyr tradition has been sustained by the stories of suffering and persecution in the martyr's mirror. Although we live in a very different context than the early 16th century, those images and stories have continued to be a living and vital source of group identity. So in the past century, there have been more than 30 printings of the English translation of the Martyr's uh, Mirror, uh, a, a traveling exhibit 
recently went to 80-some communities and accompanied by lectures and stories. We have um, the perhaps the most famous image from the Martyr's Mirror, the story of Dirk Willems that has showed up in countless brochures and bulletins and pamphlets, even on the label recently of a private microbrew. Uh, and believe it or not, and the stories continue to be distilled and retold in many, many different formats, most recently in a book collection of, of essays, poems, reactions to the martyr's mirror by a younger generation of Mennonites called Tongue Screws and Testimonies. As a historian and as a Christian, I believe in the power of martyr stories to shape and renew the church. In fact, I'm so convinced about the power of stories to shape a tradition, especially martyr stories, that last year I helped to launch a broad-based initiative to gather stories for what may become a new volume in the spirit of the martyr's mirror. But, and this is a very big but, there are some significant obstacles to that vision. Obstacles that I think need to be openly identified and addressed. And so in this version of the C. Henry Smith lecture, there'll be another version tomorrow evening. In this version, I'd like to invite you to reflect with me on the complex nature of memory in a living tradition, especially the memory of those who have suffered persecution or death in the manner of Jesus for their faith. The question of how we remember the martyrs matters especially to Mennonites since stories of persecution have played such a prominent role in our identity, but I think it should matter to all of us, regardless of your religious conviction, because issues of religion and violence and forms of witness are in the headlines uh, every day. They are contemporary realities for all of us. In what remains of our time together today, I'd like to do three things. I wanna first make a case why I think all Christians, not just Mennonites, but all Christians, should pay attention to the stories of those who are suffering for their faith. Second, I wanna outline um, just a little sketch, a little glimpse into a project that I'm helping to move forward that is trying to systematically gather stories of persecution and suffering in the spirit of the martyr's mirror, focused especially on contemporary groups in the global church for whom this is a daily reality. And finally, I'll close with a kind of testimony of why I have been so drawn to this project, something that I call the beauty of holiness. I realize that for many of you here this morning, stories of martyrs seem pretty distant from your reality. After all, most of us grew up in a context of religious toleration, uh, dominated mostly by a Christian culture in which maybe the riskiest expression of witness for you comes in something like whether or not to pray publicly in a restaurant or whether to uh, speak openly about your faith in a classroom setting or maybe whether to greet people in December with Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays. Martyrs are something from the ancient history of the early church, why should you be bothered to care about such stories today? Why? Because the persecution of Christians 
is not just an ancient story, but a contemporary reality. As you likely know, the number of Christians in Europe and North America has steadily declined in recent decades. Yet in the rest of the world, and particularly in, in the global south, Christianity is growing rapidly. And alongside the growth of Christianity in places like Africa and Asia and Latin America is the painful reality of persecution and suffering for one's faith. A report issued last year by the Center for the Study of Global Christianity offers some astonishing figures. Since the time of Christ, some 70 million Christians have lost their lives prematurely uh, in uh, a situation of witness as a result of human hostility. That's the technical definition. Lost their life prematurely in a situation of witness as a result of human hostility. Of that number, more than half, some 45 million, died in the 20th century alone. The report estimates that at least 100,000 Christians have been martyred since the year 2000, with a sharp upturn uh, since 2012. Those figures suggest that in the past decade, about 11 Christians have been killed every hour of every day. The contemporary experience of suffering is a reality as well within that small corner of God's kingdom that I know best, within the groups that are part of the Mennonite World Conference. During the past six months, I've been gathering stories of persecution from among those groups, and it hasn't taken long to find many, many accounts. Stories in India and Ethiopia of houses burned, of businesses boycotted or vandalized, of church members stoned as they gathered for worship, churches in Indonesia whose land has been arbitrarily confiscated, tensions with radical groups in Nigeria that has led to enormous property damage and numerous deaths. And those groups are not alone. There'd be similar stories of persecution from Christians in Zimbabwe and Congo in Colombia, and the Philippines, and other countries. Bearing witness to Christ in the face of adversity and persecution and suffering is not just a memory in the Christian tradition, it is a current reality. And the church is called to bear one another's burdens. We need to tell stories of persecution and martyrdom because willful ignorance or silence or turning our heads is simply unchristian. The body of Christ is bigger than my local church or our national group or our denomination. And if part of the body of Christ is suffering because of its witness to Christ, the rest of the body must take heed. Second, we need to hear the stories of Christian martyrs because they are so unsettling. They force us to re-examine our assumptions about the nature of Christian faith, which I take to be a good thing. For many um, modern people in North America today, the concept of martyrdom is almost an embarrassment. Most of us would be very quick to agree that killing someone for their faith is just plain wrong. But we are also likely to agree that the stubborn certainty that is required of the martyr is also problematic. It's a sort of religious fanaticism that seems alien to us. Holding true to one's faith 
in the midst of suffering and death requires, I think, at least three essential conditions. First, a conviction that truth is knowable. Second, a conviction that the truth that we know compels us to public action. It's not just a private certainty that you might hold in your mind. And third, martyrdom requires us to believe that history has meaning, that one's death is part of a larger narrative working out God's purposes for humanity. On all three of those counts, most modern people, including many Christians, are likely to have reservations. Modern people in the West, people like us, may be spiritual, but they tend to hold their religious convictions rather loosely. Claims to know the truth make many of us very nervous. It seems presumptuous, maybe even dangerous. We are much more comfortable with the idea of personal truths in which our religious convictions are essentially private matters. They're personally comforting if they happen to work for you, but they're not something worth dying for. We might be willing to die defending our country or our property or our families. In fact, many American Christians are willing to kill for these goods. But few churches in the United States today are actively preparing young people like you for the possibility of dying nonviolently for your faith. To do so requires a strong confidence that your faith is not merely a lifestyle choice or a projection of your desires, but rather it's more like the force of gravity, something that is absolutely true and real, regardless of whether you believe in it or not. For the martyr whose life has been shaped by the teachings and the death and resurrection of Christ, Love is the most powerful force in the universe, whether you believe it or not. For the martyr, life is stronger than death. And those who bear witness to that fact offer their earthly lives in the knowledge that the long arc of history is moving in the direction of the kingdom of God. We Christians in North America have tended to domesticate the faith, to turn it into something safe and tidy, an extension of our consumer tastes and preferences, living with the stories of the martyrs, especially the stories of brothers and sisters who are bearing witness to Christ and the power of the resurrection should unsettle us and remind us that something of ultimate significance is at stake in our claim to be followers of Jesus. Finally, we should tell stories of Christian martyrs because the church's very identity depends on it. The church is a community of memory. We come to know who we are by telling shared stories of God's faithfulness in continuity with a long narrative that goes all the way back to the story of creation itself. With other Christians, we take our place in that grand narrative that follows God's mighty acts in history, from the covenant with Abram and Sarah to the Exodus to the prophets to the New Testament witness, and then in the ongoing centuries of the stories of those who 
voluntarily gather in his name and bear witness to God's ongoing presence in the world. Whether we recognize it or not, we are deeply influenced by the narratives we tell. Our culture is saturated with heroes of all sorts, pop stars, athletes, politicians, movie stars. And I think the church should cultivate stories of its own heroes, people who embody the highest virtues of the Christian faith, who remind us that faith is not an abstraction. It's not a set of ideas. It's not a, an argument to be worked out with a sharp pencil in the privacy of your, of your room. It rather is a life to be lived, sometimes sacrificially or at great cost. And those stories inspire us to imagine ourselves acting in the same way. With all that in mind, I'd like to give a very brief overview of a specific project. It's a collaborative initiative. It's slowly coming into focus. There are a lot of questions and uncertainties connected with it. But it's an effort to put all of these considerations into practice. It's um, a project that comes out of my context as a Mennonite. But again, regardless of your religious affiliation, I hope that the ideas that I want to propose could be of interest to you as well. As I noted earlier, The Martyr's Mirror was first published in 1685. Prior to the publication, it appeared in many, many different editions, each edition adding fresh stories as martyrdom continued. So there were about 15 publications before 1685. And then in 1685, we have this big coffee table book, and we quit publishing The Martyr's Mirror. Um, that seems to me, as a historian, to be an odd historical circumstance because suffering and persecution didn't come to an end in 1685. And so um, I think the time is ripe for a new edition of The Martyr's Mirror, 327 years later. Last August, I invited a group of nearly 40 church leaders, theologians, historians from about 10 different countries to gather here at Goshen and to discuss together what would it look like if we were to try to pull together stories in the spirit of the martyr's mirror that would tell the, uh, uh, give an account of contemporary suffering of Christians around the world. The project is called Bearing Witness, which is the original meaning of the word martyr. And after a long period of deliberation, it turns out telling stories is not a simple matter. We came up with the following goals. We hope that this project will inspire greater faithfulness. That's an explicit, we are historians, but we also want, we see this as a project of and for the church to inspire greater faithfulness. We hope that the project will encourage a deeper sense of connectedness among groups around the world, that the stories will not reinforce a distinct identity, but in telling our collective stories, we'll say, yes, we share in, there's continuity with a shared narrative, and that we find some sense across cultural differences of a shared story as a result of this project. And perhaps above all, it seems important that we honor the voices uh, and the experiences of the vulnerable, not just by telling a story, but also by entering into that story and by asking how must we live differently as a result of hearing this story.
Those are the goals. Uh, we spend a lot of time on the question of, you know, there are infinite number of stories in the world, so how do you decide who should be included in a project like this? And this is uh, an effort uh, that is still sort of in conversation. Um, do you include only people who died? Well, we've said no. We want to include people who willingly suffered or died for the cause of Christ. So we begin to narrow the focus in the manner of the defenseless Christ. It turns out there are a lot of people who have killed in the name of Christ. And we're saying, no, our project is about people who've died in the manner of the defenseless Christ, who've expressed their faith through believer's baptism. These are the criteria that von Brock used. From an identifiable ecclesial context, we want these people who understood that their, their, their witness was part of a larger group of Christians. They were not simply isolated uh, heroes. And in a way that inspires faithfulness. So there's something about these stories should make those who encounter the stories sit up and ask hard questions about their faith. We had a lot of cautions. I won't go into all of those, but believe me, there. Some groups, for example, don't think about their experiences of suffering, uh, don't think about their, their adversity as suffering. Some groups uh, would be very hesitant to share their stories in a public forum because it could have consequences for them, immediate consequences, if you're living in a, in a, in a context of, of political or, or religious uh, oppression. Um, how one tells a story is, 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 not, is not simple. We are committed to what we call right remembering, drawing on some uh, themes in a, a, from a theologian Miroslav Wolf, which means that our stories need to be factually accurate. We need to, we, I'm, we're interested in, in having footnotes. We're not just uh, gathering hearsay accounts. We want to make sure that the stories that we tell have a context. We're committed to empathy with the oppressor. How we tell the story should be consistent with the vision or the content of the faith that we hope to promote in the telling of the stories. And if you tell a story that simply repeats evil and goodness and doesn't somehow enter empathetically into the worldview of the oppressor, you might have remembered wrongly, at least from the perspective of this project. And we hope that the stories will lead to deeper discipleship. A lot more I could say about the project, but I want to conclude with some final thoughts for your reflection that point towards, I would say, the cutting edge in my own emerging thinking on this project. When we talk about martyrdom, and I've lived with a lot of martyr stories the last year, there is no escaping the ugly brutality that goes along with the painful reality of torture and death. Martyrdom is a violation of the body and it is a violation of the spirit, both of which I believe are made in the image of God. We should never lose sight of the ugliness of a martyr's death, a violent death. And yet I also want to suggest that the witness of the martyr commands our attention because it bears witness to something that is fundamentally beautiful 
what I call the beauty of holiness. I know this may sound rather abstract and maybe even strange. We don't usually associate holiness with beauty. Holiness, we think, is about piety. It's about discipleship. It's about a kind of gritty, determined, heroic Christianity. If you want to be holy, you should avoid the sins of lust and greed and pride. You should care for the homeless. You should feed the poor. You should defend the immigrant. You should stand up for what's right. You should be strong and courageous. Those are all good things. And in some ways, the martyr stories embody the pinnacle of Christian virtue, to die for a good cause and to be remembered as a spiritual hero in the Christian Hall of Fame. That's what martyrdom is about. And yet, as I have studied various martyrs, it has become clear to me that this is not really the case. The martyrs I have come to know are often deeply flawed people. Though they may seem to have absolute clarity at the moment of their death, the time leading up to it, like the experience of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, is often filled with deep doubts and uncertainties. And some of the martyrs, it seems, weren't actually all that nice. The testimony of the martyrs is not an appeal to perfection. It's not the golden seal on some good cause. It does not offer up absolute proof that they were right. But if our model is Jesus, the one who bore the sins of the world, then we will recognize true holiness not as an escape from the reality of evil or suffering or pain or sorrow, even within ourselves, but rather a deep and reconciling embrace of all that is broken and torn asunder in our world. For the Christian, beauty begins with a recognition of God's deep, deep love for the world. Beauty is organic to who God is and the way God works. It is the evidence of the inherent wholeness and the goodness of God revealed in the depths of what is beneath the surface. Beauty is the result of God making heaven and earth from the chaos of the void, of the light that streams out of the darkness on the face of the deep, a light that God called good. The beauty of holiness names the gathering of the shards and splinters of broken lives and smashed souls. It's the trace left behind when we enter into the mess of our own world and bring together a new creation that leaves nothing out. The beauty of holiness does not explain or defend or argue for anything. It is essentially non-coercive. It does not impose anything that God or us or God's world, uh, that makes God or us or God's world look better or seem better. It simply reveals what is already there implicit in every detail of creation. Beauty emerges in the awareness that it is God and not we who determine the outcome of history 
and that in the fullness of time, history is moving toward the restoration of all creation when we shall be resurrected in a new body and shall join with all of creation in a new heaven and a new earth. Recently, I returned from a three-week trip to Ethiopia where I was meeting with leaders of the Mazarete Christos Church and gathering stories for the Bearing Witness Project. Just before returning home, I spent several hours with a young woman named Tigist, who works as a bookkeeper. Tigist was born in northern Ethiopia in a region that was very strict in its commitment to the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. She was a spiritually uh, sensitive child who spent hours in the local cathedral participating in the rituals of Orthodox worship. She even learned Ge'ez, which is an ancient language used only by, by priests. But her heart was restless. And one day a Catholic friend gave her an Amharic Bible and she began to read voraciously. She began to secretly attend a Bible study uh, longing for a deeper sense of God's presence in her life. At one point, she had a conversion that filled her with such a deep sense of joy that she began talking about it openly with her friends and family. And that experience marked a turning point in Tigus's life. Her father and neighbors were furious at her betrayal and demanded that she recant, or at least be silent. When Tigus persisted, her father gave her an ultimatum, return to the Orthodox Church or leave the house. And so Tigus, who was then 15 years old, left, frightened and alone, without many friends, uncertain about the future. For a time, she found refuge in her grandfather's house, but word of her faith traveled to that village as well, and that's where things took a terrible turn. Neighbors began to threaten her, insisting that she was possessed of a demon, that her presence would bring evil consequences. They began to whisper threats and avoided her in the village. One point, a, a group of men cornered her and beat her. And then one day when her grandparents were gone, a group of villagers took matters in their own hands. A mob showed up at the house. They broke into the home, tied her up, interrogated her for hours about her faith, and then they decided to uh, exorcise the demon, first by forcing a funnel into her mouth and pouring water over her until she was sure she was going to drown. And then they prepared um, a, a charcoal fire and a burner in Ethiopia it's used to roast coffee beans. And they put scraps of rubber in that charcoal and forced her head over the rubber to breathe in the acrid smoke. All the while, Tigris reported she was terrified and yet, oddly enough, deeply calm and absolutely confident. She recalled thinking she was about to die and began to recite verses from the New Testament that she had memorized. Finally, after several um, hours of torture, a frustrated man grabbed her by the back of the neck and forced her face directly into the coals and the burning rubber so that the melted rubber uh, stuck to her face, burning into the flesh. I won't go into the details of the next few months. Uh, Tigus did not die, 
but her face was horribly burned and disfigured. Infection set in. For weeks, her life hung in the balance. And yet, in spite of the excruciating pain, Tigris recalled that she also had a sense of peace. I knew that God was in control. I was filled with an overwhelming sense of God's love. I knew that God, Jesus had not abandoned me. I knew that the light of Christ extended even to the hearts of those men. Today, several years later, the scars of Tigris ordeal are still evident despite numerous reconstructive surgeries. And yet when I talked with her, I was struck by an almost indescribable sense of gentleness and peace. You could almost say joy. Every month she sets aside two days to pray for her family and the village. Slowly members of her family have come to a, a new faith in Jesus and have started to join her in those prayers. To be disfigured is to be shamed. Yet when I look in the mirror, I am reminded that I am a child of God's and I have strength for the day. I know what it means to be utterly defenseless. I know what it means to experience abandonment and pain. But in that weakness, I have given myself over to com completely to God. And I have entered into the presence of God. This is the beauty of holiness that I have come to recognize in the life of the martyrs. Not moral perfection, not heroic sacrifice, not death for a good cause, no matter how good it might be, but a, yieldness, a yieldedness to God as the body of Christ is poured out for the world. If you have experienced scars in your life, if you have known the pain of abandonment, the stories of those who have borne witness to the love of Christ offer a reminder that you are not alone and that you too can find your way to peace and joy even amid the pain. Thank you.